Right, let's pray together again. Father, if what we just read is true and that people will rise to either eternal and everlasting life or to everlasting shame and contempt, then what it is we gather to think about and uh, look at tonight matters forever. So we pray that uh, if that is indeed the case, that you will help us to uh, give our attention to these things that will matter for longer than anything else, and that we would shape our lives by them. So we pray that you'll help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to be in Acts once again tonight, the book of Acts. So go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 24. This is where we left off a couple of weeks ago. We have just two more lessons in Acts. So tonight, and then we'll finish up in a couple of weeks. So you might be wondering, well, what does that mean for next week? Well, let me tell you. Uh, next week, we have one more senior who is going to uh, present for us. And uh, by process of elimination, you probably could figure out that it is the one... The only, uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Ryan C. Merritt. So, um, I know you'd rather just have me sit down and hear from him tonight, but... (laughs) That's right. So you have that to look forward to. Um... This past Sunday, in the New York Times, you all do you all read newspapers anymore? Okay. That's exactly right. Well, the source of of this uh, pop up just happens to be the New York Times. There was an interview uh, for by a uh, a columnist, someone who writes for the Times, and he interviewed the president of a school called uh, Union Theological Seminary. That is a school in uh, New York State. And uh, the president is is a lady whose name is Serene Jones. Now, this past Sunday, when the article ran, uh, just happened to be what day? Easter Sunday, and so what do you suppose the topic of conversation was between this columnist and the seminary president? Easter, Easter, and more specifically, the event of the resurrection. resurrection. Uh, So this columnist uh, asked Miss Jones, Do you think of Easter as a literal flesh and blood resurrection? Because I have problems with that. So this is the columnist. He's asking this seminary president, do you think of Easter as a literal flesh and blood resurrection? I have problems with that. And here is her response. She says, when you look at the Gospels, the stories are all over the place. There's no resurrection story in Mark, just an empty tomb. Uh, Then she says... (laughs) 
Then then she says, uh, those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. But that empty tomb symbolizes that the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. All right, so that's, that's how this gal uh, interpreted, interprets, apparently, um, like the main event in the history of the world, at least according to, to Christians. So, um, so then, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, then the columnist asks this. He says, but without a physical resurrection, isn't there a risk that we're just left with the crucifixion? So here's how she answered that. She says, crucifixion is not something that God is orchestrating from upstairs. The pervasive idea of an abusive Godfather who sends his own kid to the cross so God could forgive people is nuts. For me, the cross is an an enactment of our human hatred... But what happens on Easter is the triumph of love in the midst of suffering. Isn't that reason for hope? So, in her answers, if you, if you even want to call them answers, uh, basically she says that Good Friday is about hatred, Good Friday is a symbol of human hatred, and Easter is a symbol that love overcomes uh, uh, hatred. Because if God sends his son to the cross, that can't be love is what she says, and so she says, I, you know, that's just not the kind of God that she's all about. When, if, if you have paid attention in Acts, in Acts chapter 2, Peter makes very clear that sending his son to the cross is exactly what God did, and exactly what God had foreordained and planned to do from the very beginning of time. And so I, I point this out to you, I, I bring this to your attention, um, to, to show you, to point out to you, that there are, there are people in the world who would call themselves Christians. In fact, if you read, go on and read the article, uh, the article basically concludes, the, the guy says something like, um, you know, what about me? I have a problem with the resurrection. I have a problem with the virgin birth. Do you think I could be a Christian? Do you think I'm a Christian? And her answer is well, something like, I have, problem with those things t- I have problems with those things too, and I'm a Christian minister, and you sound, so, so we sound a lot alike. So... I, again, I'm pointing out to you that there are people who would call themselves Christians who uh, would say basically that the resurrection is a hoax and that it never happened, that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and that people just don't rise from the dead. And based on what we've seen so far in Acts and based on really what the entire Bible and especially New Testament says, do you think that you would have much of a religion of Christianity if Jesus didn't actually come back from the dead? I would say not. So like what Grant read for us, it was strategic, what he read for us at the beginning, if Christ has not been raised, let me back up, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then we're still in our sins. We're the most pitiful group of people on the face of the planet. But then Paul makes it very clear, but Christ did Christ is risen from the dead. Christ did rise from the grave. Now, tonight, um, that, that is all tied in, I think, pretty uh, closely, not just with the time of year that we're in, uh, having just celebrated Easter, but actually with our passage tonight. So it was convenient that if she was going to say dumb things, she at least did it while we're studying a relevant passage so that we could use it as an illustration. 
and you know, again, I, I probably am sounding harsh. Um, I, I want for all of us here, it's normal to have questions. So if you're, if you're doubting um, things about Jesus, I don't mean, I don't mean to um, just come down hard on you. I mean, I mean, answer those questions legitimately based on what God and history tells us, not just on what you feel like should be right. So that's why we're actually going to look at this at a text like this tonight. So here we are. Acts 24. We saw last week that Paul was put on trial because of what he preached. Now, what did Paul primarily preach? Who did he preach about? Jesus. What did he say that Jesus had done? Died on the cross and risen from the dead. So he's preaching the resurrection, and he's on trial for it. He's having to stand before uh, religious leaders mainly in Jerusalem. But then the last thing we saw was that he went, uh, he was taken to another city. He was taken to Caesarea. And now he's going to be on trial in Caesarea. So you've got some notes there, and there are two, well, three um, kind of main things we're going to consider. The second one is the, is the largest. The first one and the third one we'll touch on quickly and spend most of our time on the second one. First, I just want to go through the structure of Paul's trials. So that's the first thing in your notes. The structure of Paul's trials. Let's just fly through what happens in these three chapters. And then, like I said, we'll focus on some of the arguments he makes in the middle. Here's how it basically all plays out. He has three trials. One of them is before the governor whose name was Felix. So before Felix. And then... Uh, well, let's, let's recap that one just, just really very briefly. Um, he's brought before Felix. The high priest uh, of the Jews is there to accuse him. So the high priest is able to say, this is what we think Paul is guilty of. And the summary of it, and you'd have to go back to Acts 24 and read this because we won't, we won't point all this out. But the summary of it is, he's been violating all of the key parts of our Jewish religion. He's, he, uh, he goes against our scriptures, he has violated the temple, and uh, he's preaching something that we don't believe, is basically what they accuse him of. Now, Paul's response, and that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time, but as he's going to point out, um, he says, not only, am I, not only do I believe the same scriptures as you, not only have I followed them, I actually believe that they've been fulfilled. That's the gist of, what he, of how he defends himself. So he's, the, the accusations are made, then he's able to defend himself, and um, look, at, look at verse 21. So we'll skip all the way down, this is Acts 24 and verse 21. The end of his argument against Festus goes like this. Um, he says, other, other than this one thing that I cried out, so the one thing I cried out while standing among them on trial is this, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. So, all that, all that to say, Paul is on trial because he believes in the resurrection from the dead. That's why he's on trial. So, verse 22, this is how that trial ends. Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, that was the, that was the term that they used for this belief system then, this what we would call Christianity today, uh, he put them off, and it says in verse 23, that uh, then he gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody but have some liberty, that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. So Paul's kept in prison, but he's not chained. 
he's not bound. He can roam around a little bit. He can have visitors, so it's, it's not, not as bad as it could be. Look at verse 24. After some days, Felix came back, this time with his wife Drusilla, who is Jewish, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So it seems like Felix and maybe his wife are interested in the things of Jesus. They're interested in hearing more of what Paul has to say about Jesus. But then you read uh, the next, uh, down in verse 26, you can, you can kind of see some of his real motive. Verse 26 says, At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he, it seems like he's hoping, if I listen to Paul long enough, maybe Paul will pay me so that I could let him out of prison sooner. Well, do you think Paul was going to do that? He wasn't. Uh, so, so he stayed in prison, and look how long he stays in prison. The end of, uh, there in verse 27, when two years had elapsed. So for two years, Paul's in prison, and Felix was succeeded by another man named Festus. So uh, the next trial there is before this man named Festus. It's the same structure. Accusations are made. Paul gives his defense, and then they decide to keep him in custody. And then the third trial is before a man named Agrippa. Uh, you, would, you would know him, or you maybe have heard him called Herod Agrippa. He was in the lines of the Herods, the King, King Herods of the New Testament. And he now is, uh, is king in Judea. And again, you'll notice those, that same structure. Accusation. So Festus basically meets with Agrippa and brings him up to speed on all that they're accusing Paul of. Paul is able to make his defense. Again, we'll look at that more closely here uh, very soon. That's at the beginning of chapter 26. So now turn to the very end of chapter 26. And look at the verdict. Again, we'll look at the argument here shortly, but look at the verdict that's given at the end. Uh, so Agrippa has heard Paul's defense, and here's what happens. Verse 30, so Acts 26, 30. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. So this whole council of rulers that Paul's before. Verse 31. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing deserve, uh, to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. If he had not appealed to Caesar. Now, I should, have, I should have pointed this out earlier, so let's go back and look at it. Go back to chapter 25 and verse uh, 10. Alright, so this is when Paul is on trial before Festus. And, and um, Festus basically agrees. Like, you know, you're really not in trouble as far as I'm concerned. Like, you're in trouble as far as the Jews are concerned, but not really as far as the government's concerned. So look at verse... Um, We'll look at verse 11. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. So I appeal to Caesar. Uh, in other words, he's saying, I don't want to be set free just so I can go back and get in more trouble the way I did before. 
I, if, if this is going to go to court, I want to go all the way to Caesar. I want to go all the way to the, to the guy who's over this whole country. I want to go to Caesar. Well, Caesar was in Rome. Paul hadn't been to Rome. Did Paul want to go to Rome? He did. In fact, that's what Will read for us. The beginning of, of Romans. Paul's writing a letter to, Rome, to the Romans. He says, I long to see you. I want to get there. Because I know you'll encourage me and I want to encourage you. And I want, I want the gospel to bear fruit among you. Well, Paul wants to go to Rome. He's not going to be able to go freely because the Jews won't let him. But he knows he can go as a prisoner. And he'd rather go to Rome as a prisoner than not go to Rome and be a free man. That's pre- pretty uh, high commitment, right? So that's the structure. That's the three chapters as quickly as I can summarize them. Now, we're going to go back. Uh, and this second part, like I said, will be where we'll spend most of our time. I want to show you how it is uh, that Paul argues his case. How does he defend himself? And, and there's a thread here that is consistent in all of them, and it, and it does have to do with what we've emphasized already, and that is this idea of a resurrection from the dead. So, let's go back and look at, at how he defends himself. Uh, go to chapter 24. And verse 14. <clears throat> so, Acts 24, 14. And this is him before Felix. So this is his first trial. He says, This I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. So the God of all the Jews. Believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. So all the Old Testament. Verse 15. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection, both of the just and the unjust. Alright, here's what I take from that. Write this in your notes. What is central to Paul's arguments? Here's, here's essentially what he says. The hope in God from the law and the prophets. The hope in God from from the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets, is that there will be a resurrection from the dead. So, did you notice those words there? Uh, Verse 14, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. And verse 15, having a hope in God that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So, again, think about how it's the Jews who are accusing Paul and saying, you're not in line with us. And Paul turns around on them and says, I am in line with everything you claim to believe, just I actually believe it. That's really what he was saying. Now, Where in the Old Testament do you have any idea that there might be a resurrection of the just and the unjust? Could you think of one place? What did you say? Okay, yeah. Uh, Revelation, Revelation in the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? Anywhere in the Old Testament? Maybe Jonathan could go back to what we all read together. 
All right? What does Daniel say? Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, who sleeps in the dust of the earth? People who've died. Shall awake. What happens when dead people wake up? What do we call that? A resurrection. Some of them will awake to everlasting life. What would that be? That would be the resurrection of the just. Those who are righteous to everlasting life. But some to shame and everlasting contempt. That would be the resurrection of the unjust. So, so Paul probably has this in mind from Daniel. And he's saying, you know what? If you really believe the Old Testament, you would believe that people would rise from the dead because it says it there. So, question for us. What are your, what are our ultimate hopes? What do you hope for more than anything else? What do you, what is it that you uh, anticipate and long for and look forward to um, more than anything? And because for Paul, it's the resurrection. He says, he says, the hope I have from God is that there will be a resurrection from the dead. If your, if your hopes are in anything in this life, you will be disappointed. If your hope is that one day you will rise from the dead, you don't have to be disappointed. You can rise again, we all can rise again to everlasting life. This is what Paul was on trial for, he was willing to defend himself for. That's the first argument. The second way to word this um, is found in chapter 25 and verse 19. Chapter 25 and verse 19. Now this is in kind of that transition period where Festus is um, introducing Paul to Agrippa. So Agrippa hasn't yet seen Paul for himself, but he hears this from Festus in Acts 25, 19. He says, rather they, uh, the, the people who are accusing him, Paul's accusers, had certain points of dispute with him, about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive, even though he had been dead. So, here's the second point. The dispute against Paul focused on whether or not Jesus had been raised from the dead. The dispute against Paul focused on whether or not Jesus had been raised from the dead. So it's interesting that they, uh, the Jews continually want to bring Paul before the, the people who are in charge of government. You really would only do that with someone who had broken uh, some sort of civil law. But had Paul actually broken a civil law? No. no. He, in their minds, had broken religious laws because they thought he was teaching something that actually wasn't in their scripture, and yet he's trying to make the point, hey, it actually is in our scriptures. So, so Festus is telling Agrippa, he really hasn't broken any laws. This is a religious dispute. It's a dispute, he says, about their own religion and about a man named Jesus who is dead, but Paul says he's alive. So they really, it boils down to, they can't agree on whether Jesus is dead or alive. That's the whole dispute. That's what it boils down to. Now... Uh, undoubtedly, you also uh, dispute with people. You and I also occasionally have disputes brought against us. Some of the time when people dispute us, uh, it's actually good that they do because we can be pretty foolish sometimes. So it's good for people to dispute us when we're foolish. 
But in Paul's case, they're actually disputing him because he's being faithful. So, it would be, it would be um, unwise for us to, to want to be the kinds of Christians who are always making enemies because we are you know, smug and arrogant and we think we're right and we don't recognize our own, uh, where, we, where we go wrong. But it's okay to be the kinds of Christians who are opposed when we are genuinely right, and yet we have uh, seminary presidents in the New York Times who are telling us that to believe that God would send his son to the cross is nuts. Well, you know what? I, that's fine if she thinks I'm nuts. Like, she, if she would dispute me on that, uh, I'm okay with that. I don't want to be disputed because I'm, um, you know again, arrogant or, or dismissive, right? So you see the difference? Paul's being disputed because he's faithful. Uh, so if you're going to be disputed, let it be because we are faithful and not because we are foolish. Number three. We'll find this one in chapter 26, and we'll start in verse 6. So here's, here he is, able finally to get a chance before King Agrippa. And he says this, Acts 26, 6. He says, now I stand here on trial, here's why, because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. He has a specific promise in mind, and as we've, as we've already seen, that is the promise of the resurrection. And he says, it's this promise, verse 7, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain. All the tribes, all the Jews hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king... And then he, then he words all this in the form of a question, verse 8. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So there's a central issue again. Does God raise the dead or not? Here's, here's how we can word this. This is number three. The promise made by God to his people depends on the resurrection. The promise made by God to his people depends on the resurrection. Therefore... It should be unusual to not believe in it. He used a double negative there. I hope that's okay. It should be unusual to not believe in it because the promise of God to his people depends on it. That's Paul's point in verse 6. The promise made by God to our fathers is something that all of his people hope to, excuse me, hope to attain. They hope to attain to the resurrection of the dead. So, verse 8's question is basically, since God promised it and all His people are hoping to attain to it, why do you find this hard to believe in that God would actually fulfill His promise? Why are you disputing that God would fulfill His promise? So, so think about it. If God promises something and it doesn't happen, what does that make God? A liar. So, does God promise a resurrection? Yes. We should be surprised then if there's no what? Resurrection, because that would mean that God did not keep His promises, which we know God always keeps His promises. And they should know this too, because God's promises of resurrection are also in the Old Testament. So, either we serve a God, 
serve a, uh, claim to serve a God who is a liar, or we can believe that God will actually do what He says, even if it means raising His Son and raising His people from the dead. Number four, let's go down to uh, same chapter, down to verse 22. Same speech, still before Agrippa. Here's the end of it. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. What did they say would come to pass? Here it is, verse 23. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Here's, here's uh, how I word it in the notes. Verse 4. The message from the prophets and Moses, again, law and prophets, so whole Old Testament. The message from the prophets and Moses is that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead. It's that straightforward, according to Paul here. So look at verse 23 again, so you see why this matters for what Paul wants to do. What did the prophets and Moses say would come to pass? That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people, who's, who's Paul saying our people? Who's our people? The Jews. And to the Gentiles, that is all the other peoples, all the other nations of the earth. All right. Where does Paul want to get to? We said it earlier. He wants to go to Rome because he knows that in Rome there are peoples there and he can reach peoples in Rome and from Rome who don't yet have this light, this knowledge of Jesus suffering and rising again from the dead. And this, this, is, this is the key message that Paul is proclaiming to those who are threatening him. It's the message that he knows needs to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Just as we've seen all throughout Acts, that, that Jesus has called people to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And the message that Paul preaches is, is that main gospel message, that Christ suffered for sins and that he has been raised from the dead. If, if you don't have Jesus suffering and dying for sins and then rising from the dead, you don't have Christianity. So Serene Jones from Union Theological Seminary can call herself a Christian minister, but if she doesn't believe that Christ suffered for sins and rose from the dead, she doesn't have real Christianity, right? So want to be as clear on that as we possibly can. For number five, for the last one, look down at verse 25. <clears throat> verse 24, let's go ahead. That one's, that'll set the context. So Paul's finished his speech. Verse 24, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. No, Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. In other words, 
All people everywhere know that this is something that we proclaim. I know the king has heard this. I know the king knows what the prophets have said. So, here's number five. The confidence of belief in the resurrection, the confidence of belief in the resurrection is based in its truthfulness and reasoning. Truthfulness and reasoning. So, that is to say that we might be accused of being unreasonable because we believe that people rise from the dead, and yet Paul is able to say that in speaking of the resurrection, he's he's able to say, I am speaking true and rational words. In other words, what I'm saying makes sense because it lines up with everything God has said and done throughout history. It's the most rational and reasonable thing. So, again, go ahead and let us be thought out of our minds if we believe in a resurrection. Scripture testifies that this is the only real way to think about what is true. It's, it's unreasonable, as we said earlier, to not believe in the resurrection. Now, some people would say, well, I'll, if you can prove it to me, I'll believe it. Well, I can't, I can't prove the resurrection to you. Uh, there, there's no proof for it, okay? But there is reasoning. It's not illogical to believe in being raised from the dead. And the reason that we think it's so important that you believe that Jesus rose from the dead is, is, is because one day all of us will be raised from the dead. Like this really will happen to all of us. And we will be raised either to everlasting life or to everlasting shame and contempt. And which of those we are raised to hinges on, do we believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again in our place? Bless you. So everlasting life, everlasting contempt, those are the only options. All right. If you'd rather not be raised from the dead and just sleep for eternity, I'm sorry, that's not an option. There's no like third way, no middle ground. You're going to be woken up. It's either to everlasting life or everlasting contempt. And to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul says, is reasonable to do so. So here's the question. Look at, verse, uh, look at where we left off, verse uh, 27. He turns then to the king and he says this, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. That's... I. I don't know the tone of voice that Paul said it in, but, but it's, it's almost like Paul can tell that Agrippa's convinced by these things, but that he's not going to admit it. Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And, and, and Agrippa's response in verse 28, he said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? It might be a, some translations actually have this as a sentence. I don't know whether, I don't know if Paul meant it as a, a statement or a question, but either way, it's, Agrippa might be saying, you're really close to convincing me to be a Christian. And Paul says in verse 29, whether short time or long time, however long it takes, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains, except for my imprisonment. So the question for Paul's accusers, there in your notes, do you believe the prophets? 
So that's, that's the question I want to leave you with tonight. Do you believe this Bible that we have? Do you believe what the Old and New Testaments say? Do you believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead? Je- this is similar. Jesus himself said uh, at, at Lazarus' tomb, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he turns to the sisters and he says, Do you believe this? Very similar to what Paul is asking here. Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? So that's my question for each of you. Do you believe this? Uh, if, if you don't, if you're unsure, we'd love to talk to you. We'd love to have this belief settled so that you can know for sure that you will awake to everlasting life and not everlasting shame and contempt. Let's pray. Father, please let us not fall into the trap of thinking that these very important things from Scripture are just minor issues. These really are extremely important because they are eternal issues. So while others may try to convince us that the resurrection is no big deal or that it's not important to believe in it or that that we can just sort of pick and choose what we want from Scripture, uh, Lord, let us be convinced by what we see very clearly from your word that you have for all of eternity intended to rescue people from their sins by sending your son to suffer and die in our place and then to rise from the dead so that all of us can also rise from the dead and have everlasting life in you. I pray you'll solidify that uh, for us. Help us to respond uh, in a way that's obedient to you and help us to, as Paul showed us how to hear boldly proclaim that to others, even those who would question us for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.